Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. In 1987, Thomas C. Hudnut took over as head of Harvard School, then an all-boys former military school in Studio City. 26 years later, in 2013, Tom Hudnut retired as president of Harvard Westlake School, a multi-gender institution featuring 1,600 students spread over two campuses and commonly regarded as one of the finest independent schools in the country, if not the world. In this episode, Tom shares his perspective on that journey. When Tom took over at Harvard in 1987, was he aware of a potential merger with Westlake just a few years later? And what were the factors that finally led to the joining of these two proud institutions? And once merged, why and how did Tom set out to create, in his words, the independent school equivalent of Stanford, featuring centers of excellence not just within academics and athletics, but also in areas like journalism and the performing arts? Tom also speaks about his childhood in Rochester, New York, as the son of a Presbyterian minister, attending public schools in Rochester before heading to Choate, and then Princeton, and then the Fletcher School at Tufts. Finally, Tom's long and distinguished career in schools, beginning with St. Albans in Washington, D.C., followed by stints running Norwood, Branson, Harvard, and Harvard-Westlake, and now as a full-time head of school search consultant. Tom Hutnut on the birth of Harvard-Westlake and creating and sustaining culture of excellence. This is The Supporting Cast. Tom Hudnut, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. Oh, thank you for being here. This is a real thrill for everyone in the Harvard Westlake community to hear from you, uh, who has been a leader in our community for so long and who oversaw the merger of Harvard and Westlake, really the birth of the the school that we now know. So thank you for being here. First, I want to know before getting to that is, how are you doing currently? Obviously, this last year has been unique for all of us, for the world, for all of us who work in education, and for all of us personally, how are you and Didi and your family doing during this unique time? Everybody's doing very well, thank you. Uh, it hasn't felt all that unusual the last year in many respects. Uh, it's been eight years now since I retired from Harvard-Westlake, and during that time I've worked as a search consultant. I've been busy throughout the eight years and just as busy during the last year as I was in the previous seven I have an office. It's uh, only a few blocks from where we live, so I'm able to walk to and from my office every day. It's an office where not many people come, so there hasn't been any danger of its being a hotbed of infection during COVID. My children and grandchildren have all been assiduous in their preparations to stay healthy, and uh, although Didi and I both had mild cases of COVID in December, uh, we recovered fully and quickly and are vaccinated now, and uh, life is good. That's great to hear. And great to hear that you only had mild cases back in the winter, and you guys are in good shape. 
So you mentioned you're a search consultant, and specifically you're a search consultant for heads of school. I guess that the easy question would be what makes a great head of school, but I imagine that differs based on the type of school and what they're looking for. But I'm curious, as you work for many different types of schools across the country and try to find that perfect fit with a candidate, are there some universal traits that make a great head of school kind of anywhere, or is it really trying to kind of match a specific skill set or type of person with a type of community? Well, what we try to do is find a great fit. I think the hope is that the great fit will lead to someone's being a great head of school, but there probably are more garden variety, run-of-the-mill pedestrian heads of school than there are great heads of school. Sadly, one need only look at the dire statistics that show that the average head of school gets fired after five years if he or she makes it that long. So that answers the question about about great, great heads of school. But what we strive for is to find someone who meets the needs of a school who will fit with its community, who is in tune with the school's mission and ethos, who will be at one with the community and, and stay there for a while and do a good job. Fortunately, fortunately, the searches I've been involved with, the people are still on the job. So I have a certain amount of pride in that. And so if it's so elusive to find a great head of school, if people are being unfortunately let go on an average of every five years, you were a great head of school, you've worked around some great heads of school. Is there a quality of someone who can last long and make a, a longer term impact on a community? Well, I think resilience is a good quality to have in almost any line of work. I think it's particularly useful for a head of school because schools have, by the very nature of their being, uh, lots of ups and downs. Uh, you have faculty who come and go. You have students who sometimes die. You have parents. In a school the size of Harvard-Westlake, you could always count on a parent or two dying every year. Uh, a student dying every five years or so for whatever. Those are real traumas for a community. And if, if you get weighed down by them, you can't demonstrate the kind of resilience and the kind of leadership and the kind of upbeat attitude that I think the school community requires. So resilience would be one. I think somebody who takes the job seriously, but not her or his self too seriously, <laughs> is very important. I think somebody who has a sense of humor is more likely to uh, thrive than somebody who takes everything uh, as a dead weight. I think those are qualities. You have to like people. You have to be able to understand the program of a school. Uh, but the job is much more difficult now than it was and much less, uh, much less forgiving uh, than it was when I became a school head in 1977. That seems like a long, long time ago. But in those days, school heads didn't have their the school's lawyer on speed dial. Uh, well, there wasn't speed dial for one thing, but <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have a school lawyer per se. There weren't regular lawsuits launched by disgruntled parents or unhappy teachers. There was a respect for the head of school and for the faculty that didn't invite a lot of pushback. There were many fewer compliance issues with governments and governing bodies than there are today. It was much more the 
idea that the head of school was there to do a good job, to treat people fairly, to provide education for the young and education that uh, included civility and uh, some social learning as well as book learning. It was much more the paterfamilias role than uh, the CEO role that it has become. And what about in sort of crisis leadership? I mean, the last year has meant that heads of school have had to sort of calm the community, inform the community, lead a group of faculty and staff through a type of instruction with which they are very unfamiliar. What are the qualities that you've seen that have worked well when there are crises? And you oversaw some crises, not only in the world, things like 9-11 and the financial crisis, and, but the, the individual crisis, like you mentioned, student deaths, uh, deaths was in the community where the head, people are sort of looking for that sense of comfort. What are the qualities that work well in a, in a time like that? I always took a very pastoral view of my job. Uh, yeah. I saw myself as the uh, uh, community psychologist, rabbi, pastor, counselor, um, father figure, uh, call it what you will. But I think that the ability of the head of school to feel acutely what the community is feeling is at the core of the head's ability to be effective in times of crisis. There have been twin crises in the last year, one occasioned by the pandemic and one occasioned by racial unrest in this country. And schools have been forced to adjust to both. I think that in a school like Harvard-Westlake, the adjustment to the COVID-inspired learning styles has has been rather easier than in elementary schools. 17-year-olds can deal with technology and things in a way that 7-year-olds can't. I really feel for, for the people in elementary schools who have tried to carry on teaching kids how to read and how to do arithmetic over the across the screen and the airwaves it's just it's uh, so tough as for the other heads of school often find themselves in a in a can't win situation where one faction of the school thinks the school's moving too fast in terms of uh, social directions and other people think the school isn't moving fast enough and the head is bombarded with people's opinions from both sides I think in this, as in so many things, the job of the head of school is to steer a moderating course, keep his or her eye on the school's essential mission, and uh, recognize that the cavils are going to come from left and right, and doesn't mean you're doing a bad job. It just comes with the job, I think. So stick stick to your guns is my advice. So now, before we go back to sort of your beginnings, I'd love to go back to the beginnings of Harvard-Westlake as a merged school. Before you came to become head of Harvard School, you were head of Branson School in the Bay Area. When you got wind that that this job might be open and they were interested in in you coming aboard, were you aware, because it was still Harvard School, not Harvard-Westlake at that point, were you aware of a potential merger with Westlake even Mm -hmm. back then? No. No, no, not not even remotely. I was very much aware of Harvard School because I had been a participant in the uh, the Institute for Administrative Leadership. It was a seventeen day workshop that took place at Exeter with Harvard Ed School and Harvard Design School faculty, 
And the organizer of it was Chris Beresford, who was the headmaster of Harvard School. Mm. And I had been through the IAL in the summer of 1981 and had gotten to know Chris and had a great deal of respect for him. And so I, I knew the school somewhat. When I was being interviewed for the position, I remember being asked a question about whether I thought the school should go co-ed or whether I would lead it in a co-educational direction. I remember very clearly what my answer was to the search committee. I said only a fool would ride into a single-sex school on the white charger of co-education, and I'm no fool. <laughs> so, uh, no, there was, there was never any hint of of our merging. We did begin, however, in uh, my second year to consider the possibility of expanding the school so that it would include girls. We were not thinking of merging. We were thinking of changing the nature of Harvard School to become hmm. co-ed. And we had Kisu Park, a trustee and architect, actually drew up a plan that would have... Uh, put a big parking structure next to St. Michael's Church so that we could get all the parking off the school campus and build some buildings where parking now is. We also looked at taking over the campus of the soon-to-be or already defunct Corvallis High School on uh, Laurel Canyon that is now Bridges Academy with the mm -hmm. thought that we might put the middle school there and expand the enrollment of the upper school. We were looking to take the upper school campus as it was from about 850 students to 1,000 students. Hmm. And uh, if we could put grade 7 and 8, say, at the Corvallis campus, then that would enable us to grow the school even more. So we, we hmm. kicked that around in uh, 1988 and 89. And then my family and I were literally on, on the way to the airport to leave for a month in France when I got a, a message to call either Dr. Bing or Dr. Sprague. Norm Sprague was the chairman of the board at the time. And I honestly don't remember which one I called, but I remember the conversation very clearly because the person I was speaking to said, we have been approached by members of the Westlake board about merging the two schools. And mm. uh, we know you're going off on vacation, Tom, but we want you to think about this while you're away. And if you think it's a good idea, we'll go forward with it. And if you think it's a bad idea, we won't. And by the way, if uh, you think it's a good idea and we do go forward with it, you will be the head of the new school. Wow. So what was the motivation of Westlake back then to merge? Salvation. They were having financial problems, I understand. They, well, the they, were, right? they weren't in robust financial shape, and their applicant pool wasn't what it might have been. And they were really afraid that a, a co-ed Harvard would, uh, would gut their applicant pool even further. So it became within their interest. Once Harvard started seriously considering going co-ed, they thought may, maybe a merger is the right move. Yep. And so did we. And so that the process you get back from France... What was the reason to say yes? The opportunity to create a super school. The opportunity to lead a co-ed school of 1,600 students on two campuses was just infinitely more appealing than staying at uh, a boys' school. I don't know at what point I would have left Harvard School had it stayed single-sex uh, and of its same size. I had two sons who would go to the school, one graduating in 95, one graduating in 99. 
I might have left when the older one graduated in 95. I certainly would have left when the younger one graduated in 99 if it had remained the school that it was. But the new school that emerged was endlessly interesting, endlessly exciting, endlessly challenging. And we had the realistic opportunity of making a school that was as good as or better than any day school in the country. Well, and you say that, that this could become a super school and as good as any day school in the country. How did you realize that goal? I mean, that is an ambitious goal. And you did it not only academically, but athletically as well. I mean, Rick Commons to this day says that he's unaware of any school that has as many centers of excellence as Harvard-Westlake has, just in so many, not just athletics and academics, but in journalism and debate and the list goes on and on and on. Was that the goal from the beginning? And if so, how do you build something like that? It was absolutely the goal from the beginning. Norm Sprague, who uh, was board chair during the time of the merger, was succeeded by C.C. Bays as board chair. C.C. was a Stanford alumna, and she and I met weekly or every other week, I forget, but we were in absolute agreement that we wanted Harvard-Westlake, to the extent possible, to be the secondary school equivalent of Stanford. We wanted to be as good as we could be in everything we did. And I have often said that all I ever wanted was for Harvard-Westlake to be the best school anywhere. And so we worked to make it thus, and we had so much help. I mean, heavens, no great enterprise can rise on the on the shoulders of a few people. It takes many, many people. We had uh, amazing help from our administrators and our faculty. Once we'd had a shakedown cruise of a year or two and people who didn't want to be part of the new enterprise had opted out and we brought on some new faculty and shaken up the administration a little bit. We had a team that was really highly unified. We were very, very lucky in that early on, a couple of high-profile athletes, Jason and Jaron Collins, came to our school and that got us onto the athletic map. It's interesting that Jim Scrumbus, the head of uh, Sierra Canyon School, has gone the exact same route, trying hmm. to get his school well-known. That we, He even talked to me about it. He said, Tom, how did you make Harvard-Westlake so well-known? And I said, through the sports pages. Uh, <laughs> people read the sports pages. And lo and behold, when, when in 1997, I think, or 96 or 97, We ended up being the number three basketball team in the country, and the Collins Twins were well-known throughout America. All of a sudden, everybody knew about Harvard-Westlake, and then it happened in water polo, and then it happened in girls' soccer, and then it happened in girls' volleyball, and then it happened in baseball. There was a proliferation of excellence that was fostered by people who were committed to excellence, just as we had proliferating excellence in our academic programs fostered by people who were committed to excellence in the classroom. So these things sort of fed on one another. Uh, It's interesting. I had been, I think, uh, recruited to be the head of Harvard School because Harvard was known sort of as an AP factory and uh, not a very caring or warm place. It had no appreciable fine arts or performing arts programs. And one of the things I think that had been the hallmark of my leadership at Branson and before that at Norwood and a great interest of mine is the performing arts. 
And so we started as soon as I arrived to to beef them up. And lo and behold, we ended up with, uh, uh, you know, Jane Campbell starting the choral program and Ted Walsh starting the theater program. And before long, we had a much vaunted choral program and a much vaunted theater program. Once we got the Feldman Horn facility built, we had a thriving uh, visual arts program. And success feeds on itself. And people want to be associated with success, whether it's the New York Yankees or Harvard College. People love to hate them both, but they, they, they only do so because they actually revere them. And uh, I wanted us to be in the same position. But how do you create that culture of excellence? I mean, you said it fed on one another and you had the Collins twins come and then the basketball team is known and then these other sports. And obviously it takes great coaches in these individual sports to sort of build individual cultures within those teams. But I know at least coming as an employee to Harvard Westlake, there's this Harvard Westlake way is sort of what they call it. It's the attention to detail. It's that anything we send out isn't going to have an error because we're going to check it 11 times, (laughs) whereas another school might check it two or three. No, we had something once, 1,800 invitations, as I recall, or maybe it was more than that, that had a typo in them, and I made them do them all again. Exactly. And how do you create a culture where, and it exists to this day, by the way, and you haven't been head of of Harvard-Westlake in what, eight, eight seven, years, eight years eight now? Years. Eight years, and it remains. Well, that glad, DNA remains. Glad to hear that. When you look around, when you're an employee there, and I've been an employee there a long time, two different stints, when you look around, everyone is working just as hard and just as attentive to detail and just as committed to excellence as everyone else. And it, it goes to when you do an event and the operations guys are taking photos of where they're laying the electrical cables to make sure that next year they know exactly how to lay them the exact same way so that it's just... It's just perfect. The, the quick answer is I don't know how you do that. You'll have to <laughs> you'll have to ask the people who were who were working there with me. I I think yeah. that you set some of it by example, by asking people always to aim up, by raising yeah. the bar, by expecting people to do well, by surrounding yourself with people. In my instance, it wasn't very hard who were smarter than I am and abler than I was in all sorts of areas and uh, igniting in them the, the flame of excellence that just would keep on burning. Yeah, You have to keep goading yourself because nobody will do it. I remember saying uh, that the marketplace isn't going to make us better. We have to make ourselves better. And yeah. it's that internal goad that I always felt so strongly and I guess became part of the, the ethos of the school. Snow, so I want to get to you. You were born on the East Coast. Is that right, yeah, Tom? Rochester, New York. And what did your parents do? My mother was a stay-at-home mom and my father was a Presbyterian minister. And how did they, you said you thought of your role as a head of school as a pastoral one. Yeah. So I'm curious what your, um, both your parents, I suppose, but in, in particular also your father as a Presbyterian minister, what kind of effect that had on you and the future career that you would take up? What I got from my parents was yeah. several things, but noteworthy in terms of my own development, I think, were an abiding interest in other people a respect for other people, regardless of their station in life, Mm. and a reverence, for want of another word, 
for the English language. Hmm. Both my parents spoke the language beautifully. Both had big vocabularies. Hmm. My mother had been a classics major in college, and she had an amazing appreciation of the language. And my father made his living public speaking. So for me to fall into a line of work where language was important and public presentation was important was pretty natural and almost preordained, I'm afraid. And you have a lot of siblings, is that right? I was the youngest of six. Wow. And all boys, is that right? No, five, no? five boys. Five boys. Five boys. And one my, my sister was number five. Yep. And then you went to private school Mm-mm. growing no, up or public school? I went school? to public school through the eighth grade. We had a wonderful public school system in Rochester in those days. It was lionized as one of the best in the country. It was one of the first, I think, to have what nowadays would be called gifted and talented programs. I had marvelous teachers through seventh grade. Uh, Rochester was interesting in that elementary school ran through grade seven and high school began in grade eight. There was no junior high. There was no middle school. Mm. So I went from uh, number one school. Schools in Rochester were numbered. and The one in my neighborhood happened to be number one. And I went from there to mm. East High School. <laughs> I laugh because in 1960, 1960, when I went to East High School, it was brand new. And it was the absolute last word in educational facilities. And it had cost $15 million for this vast high school. It had like 2,500 students in it. And I think that that's what, about what the Munger Science Center cost when we built it. <laughs> but then you transferred to Choate, is yeah, that right? My my brothers had all gone to boarding schools, two of them to Choate. And I went, I went to, uh, to Choate as well in the ninth grade. And what was your experience there? And were there teachers or was there a headmaster there that, that kind of caught your eye? I obviously or? had a terrific time there. Uh, I, yeah. don't, I don't think one becomes a, a school teacher who had a lousy adolescence. Uh, I, I had a great time. I loved the freedom of it. You see, being the youngest kid in my family and my sister was five years older than I. So when I got to eighth grade, she was in, off in college. And it was just me and the folks rattling around in a big house, and that wouldn't have worked very well. I, I have a yeah. contrary nature and uh, was uh, much more interested in things that they weren't interested in than, than <laughs> would have been healthy for our relationship. So I asked them, please, to let me go away to boarding school earlier than my brothers had. And fortunately, they had the wisdom to acquiesce. And so I went off in the ninth grade. And I really loved it. I loved the freedom of getting myself to and from school. I loved the idea of being accountable for my work and not having to justify it to them. I had a, I had a wonderful time. I furthered my interests in singing and uh, debating and uh, public speaking, developed some very strong friendships. I had some faculty whom I was close to, but I, I wouldn't say they were mentors in particular. I benefited from all my teachers, and I remember them all. I can tell you every teacher I ever had. But from there, you went to Princeton. Yeah. Where some of your siblings had gone as well. All, is that right? All. <laughs> all my brothers. It was single sex in those days. So it was That's right. precluded that my sister would go. But my, 
My grandfather had graduated in the class of 1886 and my uncle in the class of 1916, my father in the class of 1927, a cousin in the class of 49, another cousin in the class of 53, and my brothers in 54, 56, 57, and 61. Wow. So it was in the DNA of, of your family. It certainly for was. Sure. You know, you've heard it from many families, I'm sure. But my father used to say, you can go anywhere you want, but if you go to Princeton, I'll pay. <laughs> so my active adolescent rebellion was applying to Harvard. Oh, geez. Uh-oh. <laughs> but you made the wise choice, of course. Then. I made the wise choice. And so what about Princeton influence? You Clearly, it was such a big part of your extended family, as well as your own education. Is there something about the culture created at Princeton. We, we talk a lot about the allegiance that alumni yeah. have, Princeton alumni have for the school, the level of alumni participation and giving, the level of, of attendance at reunions. You and I have seen each other at, yeah. at reunions. How do you explain that? And is that something you carried with you? A couple you of things stand out. One is the uh, relationship I formed with, with my closest friends. Yeah. We are still close. We gathered at our family's summer home a few years ago for our 50th matriculation reunion. Wow. 50 years after we had all met as freshmen, uh, we got together again, and we were all at our 50th reunion then four years later, and we're still close. We've had group calls during COVID, for example. I think wow. that, kind, that kind of bonding by extrapolation bounds you to and, and bonds you with your university as well. And something else uh, was was very important to me, and that was uh, my participation in the musical comedy troupe at Princeton, the Triangle Club. Yeah, it uh, still exists today. I had the lead in the 1966-67 Triangle Club show. It was an enormous part. It probably shouldn't have gone to me because I was not a conspicuously good actor. Uh, But (laughs) anyway, I had it. And I had a hurt back during our tour. We played 19 cities in 21 days over winter break. I had a hurt back that that really bothered me. It was good for my character because I learned that people who paid money to come to the show don't give a damn how you feel. Right. They're there to see the show. So shut up and perform. Uh, And that's that's a good lesson. It's a it's yeah. a very good lesson, and you don't get paid to have a bad day, right? You used that's to say. exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> right, Mister Goldsmith. You don't get paid to have a bad day. One of my celebrated aphorisms. That's right. <laughs> so anyway, I learned a lot of character there. I was fortunate in uh, being able uh, with with one of my roommates to chart a a, a relatively uh, unknown area of contemporary French political-military history to write our senior thesis on. It got published as a book in France. Wow. Uh, I don't think it ever sold very many copies, but the fact is it's in every scholarly library everywhere. And that gives a certain cachet to somebody who's going into the world of education. And uh, I went off to graduate school intending to uh, join the Foreign Service and be a diplomat. And uh, Mm -hmm. This is at the Fletcher School at Tufts, correct? Yeah, exactly. Went to Washington, D.C. after I'd gotten my master's degree, figuring that I would join the State Department. But I needed a job, 
and I had to mm. keep the wolf away from the door somehow and feed my new bride and uh, myself. <laughs> and so I went to look up uh, an old housemaster of mine who by that time was the head of the history department at St. Albans. I remember it was in June of 1970, and he said, oh, no, it's June. Schools like ours have done all their hiring by now. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Let me introduce you to the headmaster. Hmm. So he took me into the headmaster's office, and I sat down. The headmaster was this nice 65-year-old Episcopal clergyman. Hmm. My father was a 66-year-old Presbyterian clergyman. Hmm. Different sides hmm. of the same coin. Putting me in that man's office that morning was like giving... Isaac Stern a Stradivarius and saying, play. <laughs> and after about 20 minutes of our conversation, he slapped his hand down on the desk and he said, ah, the mischief with it, Hudnut, I like you. I wish you could teach Latin. And so I stiffened my back and said, sir, I can teach Latin. <laughs> and he reached under his desk and pressed a button. I've never had one of those under any of my desks, but he pressed a button and a secretary appeared through the door and he said, get John Davis. And a few minutes later, this nervous-looking, bespectacled, white-haired man came in, and he said, John, meet Hudnut. He's our new Latin teacher. Get him a contract. And, that, and so that, and that started that. your career? Yes. You, that started your career in education? Yes. Wow. And so your career at St. Albans, I know that Ted Walsh enters the story at some point during his interview. Yeah. He talked about meeting you at St. Albans. Did you stay teaching no, Latin or no, did you start to kind of I, advance at the school? For all my bluster and confidence that I could teach Latin, which I had studied at Choate, I did not try to present myself as a classicist. They actually were only looking for someone to take on the Latin for one year because the real classicist was finishing his PhD at North Carolina and would return mm. was the thinking. And then I would move into an area of, that I knew something about, which was to teach European history, which I did for the rest of the time. But after two years, I uh, found myself involved in college counseling. And after four years, I was the head of the college counseling, all the while teaching a required course in European history. And then I became dean of students for the upper school. My triple function there of teaching a required course being the dean of students and doing the college counseling for half the seniors. That is what led to the creation of the dean system at Harvard-Westlake, ultimately. Oh, is that right? Yes, because it was huh. my knowledge of students over a period of years, having had them in for any disciplinary function in my office, any infraction in my office, having uh, them in class, in my history class, and having many of them as my counselees, I got to know them, I got to know their families, I got to know them in a deeper context than simply someone who is the college counselor in the third office on the left ever would. Right. And that was the genesis of my conviction that that type of counseling dean relationship is the best way to go. Because if you're getting to know these students in a much broader way, you're able to a, be a better resource for them, understand what their college choices might Correct. be that would be best for them, and be able to write recommendations yes. and, in a more nuanced way. And you have been able to establish some trust with their parents because you've mm. treated them fairly so that yeah. if you know they're not going to end up going to the college that their parents think they want them to go to, that medicine's going to go down a little easier if you have three years of history with people. 
than if it's right. just some people you're meeting for the second time. And so the the headmaster at St. Albans, yes. in addition to hiring yes. you, you had mentioned was pretty influential to you as he a was. school head. He was. He was a, a, a very different sort of man. He was not at all an academic. Hmm. What he was was smart, and what he was was wise. Hmm. It took some time to realize how wise he was. Is there an example you can give? Well, there were times when we thought he was a bit of a fuddy-duddy, but um, <laughs> he used to begin faculty meetings by reading letters from alumni to him that somehow seemed strange. He was old school when it came yeah. to understanding adolescent relations, but what he was not old school about was what was right and what was wrong. Mm. He had a very clear sense of what was right and wrong. He had a very clear sense of social justice. He had a very clear sense of our obligation to do good as much as we did well. Mm -hmm. I had grown up with many of those influences from my parents, but I got them in spades from Canon Martin. And was that around the time when you started to think, mm, maybe not foreign service, maybe being ahead of school? Oh, was... I'd, I'd come to that conclusion by the second half of my first year. Oh, okay. And, w I was, and why? I, I just, I liked what I was doing. I liked the variety yeah. of it. I liked the people I was working with. And once I became the college counselor, goodness gracious, here I was 25, six years old. And I had cabinet officers in my office, and I had senators and congressmen in my office because right. their kids were at the school. It was yeah. very heady stuff. I mean, sitting there and telling Elliot Richardson uh, what his son was doing in my class. And so from there, what was your next move from St. Albans? Well, again, I was very fortunate because in addition to Canon Martin, the aforementioned bespectacled white-haired assistant headmaster, John Davis, yes. had taken a real shine to me. My attitude always was, and I've sought to inculcate this and have succeeded actually in inculcating this in the administrators who have worked for me and gone on to become school heads. My attitude towards work always was to go into the head's office and say, what can I do? Yeah. What needs to be done? How can I be yeah. helpful? That's how you get ahead. So they had given me opportunities. They had given me extraordinary opportunities for one so young. And there was a school in the suburbs, a feeder school to St. Albans called Norwood School. It was a K-6 school. And the woman who had founded the school and run it for 25 years was retiring. And they'd had a search going on, and the search hadn't been very successful. And I guess this woman named Frances Marsh had called either John Davis or Charlie Martin and said, uh, yeah. Do you have any suggestions for us? Uh, our search has gone nowhere. And uh, they said, yeah, you should take a look at Hudnut. And so I went out there in uh, President's Weekend, 1977, had an interview with the search committee on Saturday and was offered the job on Monday. I was 29 years old. Wow. What's it like to run a school at 29? Well, I didn't. I had a birthday in between then and when I took uh, over. So I was all of 30 by the time God, I arrived in July. A wise old 30. <laughs> uh, again, no, I was, I was so lucky because the time and place and the mores of the day were such that I had time to grow. I had time to learn. I didn't know beans about little kids. I didn't know anything <laughs> about teaching reading or 
dealing with children other than the fact that I had some of my own by that point. People at the school were forgiving, and uh, I learned. And I had a wonderful board chair, very, very wise, wise man. After a couple of years, there was another board chair, and I was fortunate in the board chairs I had throughout my career. And I just, I learned and got better and uh, knew that working in a K-6 school was not going to be my life's work. I was ready to get back to the high school level. And yeah. I remember in the summer of 1981, there used to be circular, now they come in emails, but there used to be pamphlets that had job openings in them. And uh, yeah. I, I remember tossing one on the bed of our summer home and saying to my wife, with reference to one in particular, hell will freeze over before we're living in California. Well, <laughs> well, of course, one thing leads to another, and yep. I become a candidate for the job at the Branson School, and their board chair comes to visit, and somebody on that board had gone to law school with Jim Campbell, who was by that time the law the uh, board chair at Norwood, and so I was pretty easy to check up on, and everybody hit it off. And next thing you know, I'm being offered the job at Branson, and uh, we move to Ross, California, and I take over Branson on July the 1st, 1982. And then, of course, it was from there that you came to Harvard School. So before we – I have some kind of get-to-know-you questions to finish up in a moment, Tom, but but you were head of Branson – for those, I suppose, six years, or sorry, five, five years. Five. And then 26 years as head of Harvard and Harvard Wesleyan. Yeah. What did you love about being a head of school? So many things, actually. I would say at the top of the list, I love seeing kids grow and mature and uh, go from being silly little things to being adults whom you can actually talk to and whom you yeah. can engage with. I loved seeing families grow and uh, mature. I loved seeing teachers innovate and grow in their craft. I loved seeing schools grow. I loved seeing the schools succeed, whether it was, as we were talking earlier, whether it was on the basketball court or the soccer field or in the pool, whether it was in the concert hall or in the dance studio. Success is a, an elixir, and the more success you have, the more you enjoy it. Well, before we go, there are a few standard questions as part of this podcast. They relate to Los Angeles, where you've lived quite a long time now. We are known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So the first question, <laughs> Tom, is what is Tom Hudnut's favorite movie? Oh, well, I mean, how, how, do you, how can you beat Casablanca? I love Casablanca. I could watch Casablanca regularly. Patton with George C. Scott came out yeah. in the spring of 1970. I must have seen Patton a half a dozen times. It's a yeah. great movie. A Fish Called Wanda. How can you not <laughs> love the silliness of A Fish Called Wanda? That's One of the a, funniest movies of all time. It's a great yeah. movie. Um, yeah. There are a lot of movies that are no longer politically correct, so I probably can't say how much I enjoyed them, but uh, you can imagine yeah. what they are, and I did. What's your favorite meal in L.A.? Could be something you guys make at home, or it could be uh, at a restaurant. I'm very partial to uh, all kinds of good food. My favorite restaurant is probably Melis. In Santa Monica? Yeah. 
where the food is just sublime. If left to my own devices, if I could have anything I wanted, I might at home I might have linguine and sausage, which mm. has been a uh, family standby for years. But I have very uh, Catholic tastes, and I'm happy eating almost anything. And what's your favorite place in L.A.? Is there a part of L.A. that you and Didi enjoy these days? Is it seeing grandkids, or is there a street or a part of town that you guys enjoy? I enjoy it all. I've often said that I lived in New York. My parents lived in New York all the time. I was in boarding school and college, so New York was home growing up for a lot of it. I've lived yeah. in New York, Boston, Washington, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and I've had lots of relatives in Chicago where I've spent a lot of time and where our daughter and son-in-law went to college, Northwestern, actually. So I feel as though I've done America's great cities. And this, yeah. is, this is the best one of them all. Uh, you can you can speak any language you want in Los Angeles and find people who speak it. You yeah. can eat any cuisine you want in Los Angeles and find people who serve it. You can be as important or as anonymous as you want to be in Los Angeles. You can ski in the morning and swim in the afternoon. Yeah. You can do all sorts of things. And it's uh, not nearly as judgmental a place as, say, San Francisco or Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. This is a truly democratic place that lets people be, as far as I can tell. All right, last question. You are the parent of, of three children, and you have several grandchildren as well. I am the parent of a two-year-old little girl, and we have another little girl on the way, actually. My last question that I'm asking everyone is, what is your best parenting advice? Don't give them too much advice. <laughs> Listen more than you speak? Meaning... The nursery rhyme has a lot of wisdom to it. Leave them alone and they'll come home, wagging their tails behind them. As children get older, they need to establish their own personalities, set their own interests, hitch their wagons to their own stars. Too many parents, I think, try to create children mm. or create adults out of children. I think too many parents worry about child rearing per se. I always used to say that we're not in the business of raising children. We're in the business of raising adults. Hmm. What somebody's like at age 12 is really not very important. What someone's like at age 30 is very important. Hmm. And so it's important that we keep that in mind. And so places like schools are formative, certainly, you would agree. Absolutely. But if parents and schools try too hard to mold the clay directly rather than indirectly, it isn't always as helpful. Right. And I think there's certain rites of passage. There are certain stupidities that, that children need to indulge in and need to go through. Right. And it's part of the growing up process. And I think that's an area in which schools need to, uh, need to cast a benevolent eye. Making some mistakes and learning from them. Absolutely. Well, Tom, thank you so much for spending this hour with me and with us and with all who listen and who care about Harbor West. Like you, you, your influence is still there, as I said, and people <laughs> care a lot about this school and you had such responsibility for, for what the school is today. So I thank you for that. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to have been on with you. Thank you for asking me. And uh, there's always room for improvement. Let's yes. Forget that. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Eli. Thank you, Eli.